Welcome to the VoxGig podcast. We talk to people in the developer community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. For more details, visit voxgig.com slash podcast. All right, let's get started. In this episode, we talk to Asim Aslam, who is my favorite kind of CEO, a CEO who codes. In fact, you would be hard pressed to keep up with his GitHub, which is a sea of green. Quite wonderful. Asim is the CEO of M3O.com, which is a startup offering a universal suite of microservices. It offers a full business logic layer for building applications. I'm rather fond of this idea because to my mind, this is the purpose of microservices really to provide reusable business logic and make it easy to plug together. Asim's startup is built on the basis of an open source project, which contains over 100 microservices, and which he has maintained for the last couple of years. You can find it at github.com slash micro slash services. So jealous, what a wonderful project name to have. Using open source in this way has accelerated the creation of his business. We also talk about how being a maintainer for an open source project is a lot like commercial developer relations. You have the same sort of forces and you have to do the same sort of things. It's just that nobody pays you. Without further ado, let's get started and hear from Asim himself. Asim, it is lovely to have you here today on the VoxGig podcast. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for having me, Richard. I really appreciate it. Excellent. So my first question is going to go straight into what you were doing. Um, you're one of those people who has founded an open source project and then turned it into a startup. Uh, take us through that story. How did that happen? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, uh, back in um, 2015, I was working at this ride hailing company in London called Halo. Uh, Halo was a taxi app competing against Uber, and uh, I had joined to uh, help them re-platform, and they were effectively, you know, migrating to a Go-based microservices stack. And after spending a couple of years doing that, I realized, you know, the power of that technology and, and architectural pattern. And I realized that, you know, there wasn't any sort of open source tooling around that. Um, Netflix had been, you know, blogging about it. They had something in Java that they were talking about, but there wasn't anything in Go. And my kind of feeling was, you know, if there's, you know, Rails for Ruby and there's Spring for Java, then then there has to be something for Go. So I decided to write something, um, open source it, and then, you know, quit my job and, and kind of focus on it full time. And, that's you know that's where it started and um, I mean, was, you did that at the, at the start was that just I'm just going to do open source or did you have an idea that it was going to become a company? Well, I to be honest, I, I thought it could be a, a product and a company. I saw what Pivotal had done with Spring um, and Spring Cloud, which was based on Netflix, uh, Netflix's cloud um, architecture, and I just thought, wow, you know, I could do this in Go, you know, for the cloud. Um, And so, you know, my first instinct was like, let me try to build something. Let me try to raise some funding. Um, 
I knew a few people, you know, I knew, knew some people back then like uh, Alexis Richardson who was doing weave works and he was kind enough to make some introductions for me. Um, yeah, but ultimately nothing kind of formulated uh, on the funding side back then, but that was the the goal, the ambition. I did feel like this kind of, this, you know, platform and architecture could be a product in a company. Yeah, and, I, and looking at the open source, uh, I mean, there's an a mountain of work there. The, um, the the project itself. So just so we get this right, um, what's what's the exact GitHub URL for your project? Well, well, I would say the you know uh, times have changed uh, and things have moved on, but the the GitHub URL is or the GitHub org is micro, uh, m i c r o. Oh, you've got the that's a lovely one to get. Well done. Yeah, exactly. So so, so is this um, but the. But the initial project that I actually started with was a project called Go Micro. So it's just Go hyphen uh, prefix to that. Um, and that the start the starting point was really, hey, you know, what's the smallest thing that I could put into the hands of the developer that they could use? And it was this idea of a of a framework. Um, but the overarching, you know, product company, everything like that was micro and this idea of a platform uh, more so than a framework was really what I thought about. Um, the, the, you know, th this is seven years ago. So you start with one thing and then you evolve it. And over time you realize that the, uh, you know, the usage patterns that you had thought existed actually diverge from, from your own use case to whatever the audience is doing. And so this is how I ended up with, you know, separate projects effectively. What I, what I like about what you've done is you've kind of taken it to the next level, which is uh, a lot of the microservices frameworks in whatever language tend to focus on things like, uh, you know, the networking and service discovery and circuit breakers and all this stuff, which is important. But what you've done, it takes it to the next level because you're also solving business logic problems, uh, which a lot of frameworks I find just leave to the developer. Whereas you mentioned Ruby on Rails. If you look at Ruby on Rails, one of its values is that it also solves the business logic problems, um, you know, because there because there is an ecosystem of things that do user management and e-commerce and stuff like that. Um, was that deliberate, or is is did it just evolve that way? No, I mean that this was uh, sort of always the goal, right? Like the whole the whole the whole value of the thing that I saw at Halo was the fact that we had you know like a hundred plus microservices running on this platform. The, the framework and the platform itself enabled the development model, but it was the value that was in the, the services and, and what you could do with those, right? Because those were powering uh, mobile apps, web apps. Uh, every new service could leverage another hundred services that were already on the platform to perform, you know, interesting kind of new uh, features. And, um, and I thought like, how do you really, how do you put this, in, into the open source, right? Well, you can't really start with all of that. It's very hard to drive adoption through that. So you have to start with a framework, then you move on to a platform, then you move on to services. Uh, and it was, um, I think around about the time that, you know, the project had maybe 5,000 uh, stars that I was able to raise funding to build, you know, a hosted, a cloud hosted offering. And, Part of the iteration through that was we started to write these services and um, it was only recently, you know, 
like maybe a few weeks ago where where I actually blogged about it and said, hey, look, here's, you know, 70 plus services that you can leverage. Yeah. So, okay, let, let's let's get a tiny bit technical for a minute. So uh, in your framework, uh, how do the services communicate? Um, they're doing it via RPC, via gRPC. Okay. Okay. And let's say that you have a, a business logic service that handles user management, that type of stuff. How do I go about customizing that? I mean, every every implementation, you know, every app that you build has its own weird needs, requirements, that sort of thing. Your user management service, let's say, has the basics. Um, how, how do you customize it? Yes, yeah, so this is the interesting thing, right? Like it it changes based on what people's requirements are um, and, and where they're running it. So from our standpoint, we built the thing that interrupts with all the other services that we built and, and what we needed. And then we're offering it you know, on this uh, as an API to end users who, who can use that as well. And it's their choice how they augment that. But from my perspective, let's say you're picking up and running this open source software. You know, you can, because it's open source, you can fork it, um, right. you know, change the code and then run your own copy of the same thing. Now, the, the interesting thing here is that, you know, all that logic is hidden within the service, right? So, the endpoints can stay the same and to to any other service to any other user it's still just an authentication service a user service by the same name um but you can customize it contracts so yeah exactly so i think um one of the simplest examples for people here is that there are multiple third-party uh user authentication management providers you know so you might say hey, I have this user service that has a contract and anyone who offers a user service has to honor that contract. So whether it's Auth0, whether it's Google, whether it's Twilio, someone else, you can write a copy of that service that does it. Now, whether or not you run this all of the same, you know, all of them at the same time or whether you just switch them out, it, it doesn't really matter to the end user, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. And talk to me about the experience of being uh, an open source maintainer. I I am one myself. I, I've maintained a, a microservices platform focused on Node.js for <laughs> over, over 10 years, uh, yeah. uh, which is, it's, and it's evolved in, in, in that time. But I've gone through all those experiences with, you know, um, uh, contributors who, who are really helpful, people who write documentation, uh, contributors that are uh, have outlandish expectations, people who are rude, um, all sorts of crazy stuff. What's tell me about your experiences? Um, I think mine, mine, uh, it might be similar to yours. It's, it's quite tough because I was a solo maintainer for uh, a really long time, for like maybe you know four and a half, five years. Yeah. Um, and you know, people, people come and go during that time, people come in who get really excited about the project, have a lot of ideas they want to contribute, but don't always have an understanding of the overall scope of the project. So, you know, it, it can be hard to, so it can be hard to bring those people in without sometimes like dampening their, you know, expectations. Um, but yeah, people still, yeah. you know, yeah, it's, it can be tough because, you know, you have this idea about what you want to build and 
and people want to come in and help. And you are looking for the help, but sometimes the alignment might not be there. Um, but over over the time, you know, a lot of um, valuable contributions have made. People have come and gone, um, but still, you end up being the solo maintainer, and that's you know quite a burden, quite a quite a task. So I think for me, initially, it's very exciting and exhilarating to have your project adopted. It's really exciting to see. Um, you know, getting thousands of GitHub stars and stuff like that, um, but it but it can be quite tough. Yeah, it's um, the thing that I found difficult is that with the manage is is it's the people who are enthusiastic are are, are in some ways uh, trickier because uh, I, I have a very strong belief in backwards compatibility and making sure that that we don't mess around with people who have chosen to adopt us previously um yeah when you have new blood they want to change everything they see all the they see all the mistakes yeah yeah <laughs> I, I would be yes i know it's a mistake yeah but we're stuck with it yeah <laughs> it's true it's true and that one is that one's quite hard because you're fighting change and they want to you know yeah. create change and often velocity of development comes through that change um <clears throat> and and I don't know, you know, some things, some things I think, the, I guess the way I think about systems design is really about building upon APIs and abstractions. And so the idea is like, you can write this kind of core piece of software and then rather than building into it, you build on it, right? So if you need new features and things like that, you extend it. It's, um, there's a lot, of, I mean, if you look at some of the the biggest you know, used pieces of software in the world like Linux and Windows and Kubernetes and, and whatever else, you know, they're modular, extensible, but then they also provide a platform to run things. And so the idea is like, you don't have to, you don't have to build into this thing. You can build on it. You can find ways around it. I think people don't often see that unless they have decade plus experience. Yeah. Yeah. You, you need a certain level of Cynicism, I think, to run uh, an open source project that, that has <laughs> a reasonably large user base. I think either either you get really lucky in the first couple of years, things go well, and you have a lot of help, like you have a lot of contributors, a lot of maintainers that are there with you, or you're stuck for a long time uh, running it on your own, and and that in itself, you know, can be tough. It, in, I mean, in terms of the the evolution of your framework, um, you you ended up you, it, it kind of was inspired by your your previous work experiences. It it ended up being used by people. Um, I found that feed I found that feedback cycle to be very helpful um, because no matter how much industry experience you have, you always end up with tunnel vision based on your 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 path dependence, right? How you ended up doing what you're doing and how you know what you know. And other people's usages are often surprising. Um, but you, ha you have to be open to them, I think, don't you? Yeah, I, like absolutely right. I think for me, um, I, you know, I really went into this building a piece of software for myself and people uh, who had similar experience. And what I find was that uh, the people who adopted it were the complete opposite. They were actually people um, who had... So so the framework was for microservices development, uh, and it required a certain level of distributed systems knowledge. And the people who came who had... They had no distributed systems knowledge and no microservices knowledge, 
And they were actually the ones who wanted to use the software because they thought that it could help them. Um, and so all of a sudden you have to kind of open up your mind to, you know, how do I enable this new kind of user who, you know, needs help with this as opposed to the user I was going after. Yeah, and I, I, I actually feel those users are more important in a way. I, I mean, one of the things that I feel the microservices community, whatever platform or language should do better at is uh, less internal discussion about uh, networking and the mechanics of service discovery and what protocols are the right ones. Um, they're, they're, all of that stuff is kind of implementation details. Yeah. Because um, we're here to get stuff done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With large teams of software developers. It really doesn't matter at the end of the it day. Did, it's true. Times, you know? um, it, it, really, it really doesn't matter. And I think, um, I think, you know, when you're working on the, when, when your job is mostly to, to kind of implement those, those details, then you can sort of get lost in it. But actually the end user is trying to solve a problem. And so you have to try to see it through their eyes where, you know, it's like, hey, look, I'm, I'm trying to build something for a business case. Um, I need help. You know, I just need to get past this kind of issue so that I can go back to doing what I was doing. Uh, it's, it, it can be hard. So I think, um, you know, the the thing that we did in the past year of building these business logic services, you know, offering them as APIs and now open sourcing them to everyone else um, is really to showcase like, look, the, the entire software world needs to kind of move up the stack. We need to stop talking about, as you're saying, networking and all this other kind of stuff. You know, it's it's, it's time to move on. Yeah, oh, completely. Uh, especially when you have clients <laughs> who want to get yeah. stuff done. How have you found the experience of moving from the open source maintenance and, and looking after that community to then, um, I guess, leveraging that to do a startup? and raise money and all that sort of stuff. Talk, I think, talk us through that history and how that happened. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's fairly inspirational. I, th I think, so as I mentioned, when I started out, you know, I, I looked at Pivotal and Spring and, and even the company before it, Spring Source, as, as kind of inspiration. And, you know, the goal was always to kind of raise money, to build a team, to build a product and a company. And so... You know, I had a pitch deck very early on, kept iterating on that, kept talking to investors. And it's a different um, it's a different skill set, you know, to to switch from, you know, one half of the day, all you're doing is sitting in front of a laptop coding to the other part is like sitting in a meeting with someone who has no engineering experience and trying to tell them why this is valuable. Um, it took it took a while. It took maybe four years before I could convince anyone to, to fund it. And so in 2019, I was able to raise a little bit of money and kind of say, hey, look, I think, you know, people people are continually trying to build and solve these platform problems. Like we should just offer one as a service. Here's a popular open source project that I built uh, that I think could be that service. And then here's all the things that we could do after we do that, right? Like rather than everyone building all of these bespoke platforms and services, we could all build them in one place and reuse that and think about the compounding value and velocity of our development then. And so, you know, I, I got that done and, and then all of a sudden you're, you know, gears switch again. So 
you're not going back to coding, you're going to hiring. You're trying to you're trying to find people who want to work with you to build this product. You're trying to align them on doing that. You're thinking about product roadmap and uh, you know payroll and everything else that comes with it. Yeah, yeah, which is <laughs> you end up you end up going. Can I please just go? Can I please just go code? Yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting, right? Because you kind of you want to go back to the thing that um, you find familiar, that you feel that you're really good at, but actually your job is to kind of evolve and and you know f- figure out the things that the company needs next, and a lot of that means feeling inadequate and not really great you know, at the next thing and the next thing, because you've never done it before. Um, it's, it's tough. You know, if, if you're up for the challenge, then it can be interesting. And I, I, <clears throat> it's what I really wanted. I really wanted to, you know, build this product, start this company, you know, wor- work with people again, because I spent so many years working on my own, um, you know, just as a kind of solo developer and open source. Um, but yeah, it, it comes with a lot of challenges. Yeah, it's um, it, it's not it's not to be underestimated, um, but you do you do learn an awful lot. You are selling to developers, right? That's your market. Yeah, that's right. Um, so you're kind of part of that chain of evolution. Uh, and if we look backwards, you're looking at things like Heroku and forwards. Are we looking at no code? Is that the place you end up, or? How do you position yourself in, in I guess, the, the future of programming? I guess, I guess the way I, I think about it is like, I, I look at the evolution of technology and the fact that we've gone from, I, I guess, think, thinking about the, the consumption of infrastructure and software services, you know, it was, you go buy some hardware, you rack it in a colo somewhere, to you know, Rackspace will give it to you over a over an SSH uh, connection. To then kind of just being able to one click deploy something. Um, to consumption of APIs, and I think in in the current field we're at is you know another decade or two of kind of trying to standardize consumption of APIs and literally all software services becoming um, programmable in in that way. And the thing is, you know, currently the idea of API consumption is, you know, you make a HTTP call to something, maybe you get a a set of client libraries in specific languages. But I think more predominantly as time evolves, you know, it's either going to be, it's going to be something else programmatic. It's going to be some no code thing. It's going to be something text-based, something UI-based, maybe even voice-based. I don't know. But I think we're going in that direction and, and you know, it's, it's one thing to have exciting ideas about what the future is and, and it's another to know that sometimes you can be too early to market. So um, for us, we're kind of really in this space where we're saying, hey, we're offering these services as APIs. You can consume them in any language, but predominantly the people who are going to use them are app developers, people building front-end applications, mobile applications, that kind of stuff. And we do see some people kind of in the no-code space adopting them as well. And that might be the next step. Um, but yeah, it's still yeah. early. And just going back to this idea of developers as customers, how, how have you found that? What, what are developers like as customers? Um, 
you know, it's tough. Like we're developers ourselves. Uh, and the, you think that you kind of understand the market and <laughs> sometimes you don't, but the, but the idea is like, I think more so, so, so I guess the thing is that the developer now has the ability to purchase within companies, wherever they are. The, the developers are usually the ones even starting companies, you know, therefore they're buying all the software tools. Um, so, so I don't think that's a barrier to entry anymore. You know, it's, it used to be like the developer couldn't get the credit card to purchase anything. You had to go through this long drawn process. So I don't think that's the problem. I think the, the bigger problem for people moving, you know, from an open source to, to kind of SaaS service space or whatever else offering a product is that like your initial user base is not your customer. You know, you're going to struggle very much to sell to that existing user because they're all already getting value out of your open source software. So, you know, the buyer for whatever product you offer as a hosted offering is going to be someone new, someone different. Maybe they had the same problems, but effectively the starting point is now as opposed to, you know, this other user who's already up and running on their own infrastructure. So I think that's, that's uh, what it's like at the moment. Yeah, there's a certain irony there, isn't there? Because the the early adopters of of, of your framework, um, they're using it because it's open source. Um, but they came in kind of eyes open, knowing that they'd have to sort out infrastructure themselves. Um, so that user base is not yeah is not quite ready to migrate over to a fully hosted offering. No. Um, it, it depends. It actually depends quite a lot on the the type of user. So a lot of senior backend developers will want to actually manage their own infrastructure. So yeah. you know those people are hard to sell to. In fact, like you have to basically avoid them as much as possible because it can be a distraction. Um, you know, front end developers are very much used to just kind of consuming services. Right, like Firebase, that type of thing. Right. Yeah, exactly. So you know, if you can get stuff into their hands, then they're more likely adopt uh, to adopt it. They're not really sensitive to that kind of thing. Um, the middle ground is is really hard. I think, you know, if we're talking about microservices architectures, I think it's a very, it's like a, it's actually a, a very, um, un, it's like an untapped market in a sense, right? Because we all, those of us who have done it understand the value of that form of development, um, but we don't see the platforms that enable that kind of development without a lot of work that you have to do yourself. And we don't see a lot of, you know, offerings that focus on that or, or provide reuse of software in that way. Um, and I think it's sort of not clear to me it wasn't clear to me in the beginning why maybe it's the complexities of the architecture. Maybe it's the fact that people do need to own it because of that. But I think now seeing that if you set the consumption model as an, as an API, uh, that there is the potential to kind of create that situation where it is two-sided. If you actually look at the, the makeup of a company doing microservices, there's a backend developer writing services and there's a front end or mobile developer consuming those services via an API. So if you just think about it, like to, to the two sides of a market, you know, the platform should enable developers to build microservices and the platform should enable 
a different set of developers to consume them. And, and that's what we ended up doing with our product. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. And it's a natural, it's a natural divide, of course. Yeah, is I mean it's a very clear divide divided by the API gateway, right? Yeah. And we, you know, we initially we started off with a platform as a service with our framework and said, hey, anyone looking to build microservices, like here's the platform to do it. And you know, again, it was a set of developers like us that were very senior that had back-end experience, and they just wanted to run their own infrastructure. So we had to kind of think, say, okay, well, you know, we're not going to capture this side of the market yet. Let's let's focus on the other side. Let's focus on the end user who is not sensitive to this infrastructure, who wants to consume something through an API, likely the Firebase user. And we'll be the ones who develop all these services first. And once there's enough value here and there's, you know, a flywheel spinning, then we'll open the platform back up for other people to develop on it. You know, and that's how we think about it. Yeah, and, and I mean that's a typical startup story, right? Where you, you you do end up kind of as you as you get out there in the market, you do end up kind of evolving based on on how people react. Um, do you see? I mean, it, it strikes me that you you're kind of are you familiar with Retool.com? Yeah. So they they offer they're part of the no code space, um, but it's a bit more serious than things like Bubble.io, for example. It's um, you know back end enterprise applications, but it's you know they're traditional CRUD apps, but there's a whole bunch of extra services. But the development model is definitely you go to a website and you're dragging and dropping things, and you have to you're you're kind of coding by configuration and doing snippets of code and text areas and that sort of stuff. Um, uh, which is just too awkward, really, um, once you reach a certain level of complexity. And it, it strikes me that you're, you're kind of one level deeper, I think. In yeah. That you, you offer the same types of functionality, but it's still proper coding. So you still have like a get out of jail in the sense that I can open my Vim or my Visual Studio or my Emacs or whatever and get work done. Yeah. I think the... Um... You know, what we really understand quite well as developers um, is is composition of software and functionality, right? We just, it's all we do day in, day out. So we really understand how that works. And we spent like multiple decades doing it. And so we understand how it fits together. And so we know how to create things that can be reused. So giving developers a set of libraries that they can programmatically then build it on top of, you know, is really the key. And I think the thing about UI and no code is they don't have that yet, right? Like every company ends up building some custom UI software to drag around these like components and widgets and whatever else they are. But what they would benefit is you know, from what we benefit from, which is um, programmability and and being able to kind of, you know, reuse stuff. So if composition of of this kind of no-code stuff actually let you escape hatch to the code, could be pure JavaScript, whatever, that generates the widget, and then you could somehow, like, chain all these things together and reuse them, that would be super interesting, but I just don't think it exists. I say I would be very interested about yeah, and it's 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 harder than it looks as well, and that's that. There's, there's, there's quite a bit of computer science in, in solving that problem. Let's wrap up. Uh, let's wrap up with a final question. Sure. 
which is um, what is what is on the cards for you in 2023? Um, I think for me, you know, I. I hit this. I hit this point in the product where um, I looked at the. I looked at it and I said, "Wow, this is super valuable. It works really well." But I think the adoption curve is is not moving fast enough, and and it means that I do have to go up the stack, right? I have to find the way I look at it is I have to find a simpler and easier way for anyone to consume APIs, and so just you know, just as we're talking about this kind of no code stuff, you know what is the simplest way to consume an API? It's through no code, right? It's where the, the person doesn't actually have to write any code at all. But yeah. I think we haven't really yet understood like the best ways to do that for APIs sort of dynamically. I, I find that there's a couple of ways that seem to work well. One is like being able to dynamically generate forms for any API so that you can just kind of use them the other is to use some sort of command line model, but on the web, um, that's another way. But but for me, the, the goal is really like, how do I simplify the access and use and consumption of these services? That That's what it looks like. Yeah, because when you, I mean, as a working developer, right, when you, when you have to use an API service, be it Twilio or whatever, it's a lot of work, you know? You got to read the docs and you got to muck about with curl and then maybe there's an SDK, but now there's another API that you got to learn on top of the REST API. And maybe they have Swagger, maybe it's GraphQL. It's not plug and play, right? It's it's, no. it's nothing to leverage and it's different for everybody. Every yeah, service is a different, different levels of documentation, different models. It's very um, tedious. Yeah, so we, I mean, we, um, we just had, uh, I think, uh, there's a, there's a university in, in Massachusetts that had just run a predictive analytics course and they had used uh, our product um, for part of that course, you know, um, wow. to, to receive, the, to, to pull out some of the data set for weather and, and kind of some other stuff. And, you know, I emailed, I didn't know that this was happening, but I saw the usage flux and then I saw the people who'd signed up. So I emailed them all to ask and basically all of them said, you know, like, it was in the course and and it was just really easy to use. The documentation was really straightforward. And there's this great selection of APIs that I can access through one API token. And that's really it for me. The selling point is that like, I don't think that um, all of the APIs in the world or all of the data or all of the services in the world are really easily programmatically accessible. You know, the browser gives you one way to access any website, any resource. Why can I not programmatically do that for all of these things? Where's the one easy resource, you know, to do that? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah it doesn't. Exist. You know, I just, I just want one API key, right? <laughs> exactly. I want, you know, I want one API key. I want one endpoint to call. I want one way to access data and services. It doesn't exist, and I think that's what's like. I think that's what continues to drive me. That it's super frustrating that it doesn't exist. That it's blatantly obvious that it should exist. And I just haven't got the consumption model right yet. So I think when I nail it, you know, you'll see that it works really well. Awesome. I'll be uh, sign me up. I'll be. I uh, <laughs> would make my life uh, quite a bit easier. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, that was super interesting. Um, yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. We absolutely. We'll 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 keep an eye on uh, M three O as well. 
And um, yeah, hope, hope to talk to you again sometime in 2023. Um, we'll see how things went. Cool. You too. Thanks so much. You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on our podcast page at voxgig.com slash podcast. Subscribe for weekly editions where we talk to the people who make the developer community work. For even more, read our newsletter. You can subscribe at voxgig.com slash newsletter or follow our Twitter at voxgig. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.